to a new episode of The Many Stories of Africans on the Rise, a podcast series about inspirational members of the African community. Our guests are people you may never have heard of, but who've made a difference for themselves or the community, sometimes against seemingly insurmountable odds, often through extraordinary sacrifice, or just awesome ingenuity coupled with unparalleled resilience. In this episode of The Many Stories of Africans on the Rise, we investigate the extraordinary life of Dozier Ezek Balike, a stateless international traveller, an elder statesman who is also passionate about supporting younger generations. Dozier is also a promoter of healthy living through his free yoga teachings for a worldwide audience, especially tailored for African men. Here is Dozier's story in a nutshell in his own words. Always introduce myself as Josie. The doctor thing is when we are at an academic conference. If you come and put yourself as doctor, the people put you on a pedestal. But if they know me as Josie, by the time they know I have a PhD, so they've already established rapport and we can continue. To be honest, when people find out that you have a PhD, they cannot switch off anymore. They've already established a rapport. I like practicing what I preach. I felt I should not go there and start competing. Why should I go and compete with those people who are not employed enough? Because I should stay in the background as an elder statesman and come and offer advice when I'm needed. For some reason, for people who are religious who say God in his infinite wisdom decided to give me a young family. So I still have that Householder responsible of raising a young family, but the retiree stage of being there done that no need to do the raptures anymore. Like the yoga I'm teaching here, it's completely free. I trained in the Shivananda system where it's still difficult for me to wrap around my head that of yoga as a business. I see yoga as something that is helping to develop yourself and I think I want to be one of those who help make it accessible to Africa that there is something in this for you. Our health is very important. These days you're mostly known for your free yoga classes for a worldwide audience, especially for African men, quite a fit there. But before going into retirement, you also led a very successful career in academia and international organizations right across the world. Can you share with us the story of your extraordinary journey? I'm originally from the southeastern part of Nigeria. When I was working, people who had been the same kind of job I was in traveling, we used to joke and say that we belong to a new global tribe called SIT, which means Stateless International Traveler. So I've traveled quite a bit. I left a long time ago, 1983 to be precise, to go and do my PhD. And I've been traveling ever since. I've not gone back to live in Nigeria. I still go to Nigeria. I'm still home. 
but Australia is also home. But I have not lived in Nigeria since '83. So since then, I've moved around, traveling, working, and now even in retirement, I'm still in Australia rather than Nigeria. So that tag of stateless international traveler, even though I'm no longer working and traveling, still follows me. And how did you end up in Australia out of all places? I went to Canada to do my PhD in uh, land information management, which is kind of an extension of land surveying. My original degree was land surveying. By the time I finished, the National University Commission of Nigeria actually went on a recruitment drive and interviewed me in Canada and actually offered me a job in a university in Nigeria. The reason why I did not take that job, and that was when things were still good in Nigeria, when people just go and study and go home. But the reason why I did not take that job was that before going to study for my PhD, I had interviewed for a job at the University of Lagos, where they offered me a job. I said, oh, you come and do the job and then do your PhD while you're with us. And they gave me a certain level of a salary offer. Now I had gone and studied for five years. I have my PhD. And the National University Commission came and interviewed us and offered me the same level. I was offered five years before I left my PhD. We got a PhD then. And I thought, these people are not serious. But by then, I still had interest to work in Africa. Not necessarily Nigeria, but then I'd been exposed to the wider continental issue. I was now looking at Africa more like my base, my constituency, rather than just Nigeria. So a friend of mine, another African who I met in Canada in the university, who had left for me, was in Zimbabwe setting up a department of land surveying in the university. And he contacted me, so I understand you, you're defending your thesis in a few months' time. Would you like to come and help me set up this department? I said, oh, that's a good challenge. I like that. And by then, I was very active trying to disseminate information about the anti-apartheid movement. So going to Zimbabwe was like, hey, being next to, next to that thing I've been talking about. On the, I was a radio DJ then. So it's something I've been talking about on radio. To be next door to that was excellent for me. So I moved to Zimbabwe to help set up this department of surveying. But after two years of that, I felt terribly underemployed because here was I had studied all these high-level PAT, land information management, how to use computers. I was one of the good computer programmers in our study group. To not go back and start teaching just basic field surveying, putting pegs in the ground, I felt underemployed. So despite all that euphoria of being in Africa, helping Africa, there's still the personal element where I didn't have job satisfaction. So I started looking for jobs outside in the West again, reluctantly. And then when I was looking, my former university guy said, oh, by the way, University of Melbourne is looking for somebody just like you, somebody with a surveying background and, a, and good computer skills that's setting up a new program in graduate diploma in GIS, and you should contact them. I said, but I've been in touch with them, and they told me they didn't have a position for me. Say, no, here is the fax number of the head of department when, where he was doing his sabbatical in, at the World Bank. Send your CV to him. He should set you up. So I sent my CV, and I got a phone call. Oh, I hear you're interested in that position. I remember I met you in Canada when I came on a visit. Are you sure you want the job? I said, I want the job. It's okay. I'll tell the university to reopen the thing for you to apply. <laughs> so here, yeah. 
So I then got this uh, fax from the university in Melbourne telling me, oh, our head of department in Washington say you're interested in this position, which has just closed. Can you please apply if you're interested? Quickly, I, I applied and then I got it. By the time I got the pre-interview stages and things, the man was back home and said, oh, by the way, I need to inform you that that job you've applied for carries with it residence status. Are you interested in that? I said, by then I could define the word migration as an English word, but I never thought it applied to me. So when he told me it carries residence, I said, what does that mean? He told me, well, it means that if you are in a hurry to leave Zimbabwe, I can send you the papers for you to get a work permit to come. But if you're not in a hurry, I'll send you a different set of papers for you to process your paper as a migrant, as a skilled migrant. And the difference is that if you come on a job work permit, when this contract finishes, if we find another person, an Australian, we give the person a job and you go back where you came from. But if you come as a skilled migrant, it means that you have all the rights of an Australian and you can move from this job to another job when this one finishes. So I'll take that. So that's how I came to Australia in 1990. But then in Australia, I really was enjoying what I was doing. But at the even though I was employed to help set up a graduate diploma in GIS, I'm still a land surveyor by training. The land surveying part of me kept me being interested in land issues in Africa. And I said, talking and going to conferences about land management issues in rural Africa. Now, just to put in context, my field, land information management, is about how do you manage information about land so that people who manage land can now make informed decisions. So it's not only land management, but managing the information that will make people who manage and administer land do it properly. So and I kept thinking that part of our problems in Africa that we don't have enough information to let the people who are experts on land manage it. So I, I kept writing about that. Then I felt I need to go back to Africa and work from an African base. That's how I went to Botswana. But then maybe there's something wrong with me because after two years again, I felt I'm not really fully employed. It's still a bit too rudimentary. I decided to leave again, then ended up in the United Nations from where I retired to come back. It's not home for me. So you first arrived in Australia as a skilled migrant, started your career, worked for a while. Then you decided to leave seeking greener pastures or better opportunities in other countries. That, that was why when the United Nations offered me a job in, uh, at the Economic Commission for Africa, I was actually on my way to a job interview in Canada and another one in the US when that offer came. I just said, oh, sorry, I'm not coming again. This is what I need to do, because in my journey, professional journey, I went from that land information management to GIS, to data management, to statistics. And in statistics, they say that if you cannot count it, you cannot manage it. And that applies to everything. We are trying to manage land, but we don't have the information to know what are the capabilities or stability of these land parcels we have. Where are they located? What can we use them for? And that's where people like me come in. So I was very happy to be given the opportunity to work in that area in a variety of areas in the UN. But then it comes to a point when you have to hand over to the next generation, the people you've mentored, 
if you, I, the, the, my last public outing before I retired was a workshop on statistics. And people were talking about, oh, how do we reform statistics in Africa? And they asked me to speak, I said, I'm retiring. And I'm going to say something that some of the people here will not like. Say, the problem with data and statistics in Africa is that we have the same people here telling us what they told us 30 years ago that didn't work. We should let the young people take over their own concepts and worldview are different. Let's allow them to make sure we stay in the background and watch and guide them. So I, I like practicing what I preach. I felt I should not go there and start competing for jobs. If I go there, I'm sure I'll get a job consulting for some government. But why should I go and compete with those people who are not employed enough? And when also they have different concepts, I should stay in the background as an elder statesman and come and offer, if I would say, advice when I'm needed. But for a good example in the data area is that in my generation and your generation, remember when you come from the media, so you understand it's when people will publish something and say, do not share this without my permission. That was our generation. Now the young people want to share it, please share, please share. These are two different concepts. Now I cannot bring that my concept of do not share without my permission in data and information management to a new generation where they want to share, they want to go viral. And there are lots of, and that's just a very simple example to see different differences in uh, generational concepts that apply to land, information management, data management, information sharing, and everything. And that's why I say, okay, now that I'm retired, let me stay back and not go and compete for the job that I know a lot of young people who don't have jobs, but be available for them when they need me. Then I'm going to compete with them and go and take consultancies and depriving them of their jobs. And after working all over the world, leading a successful career as an SIT, as you said, a stateless international traveler, why did you finally choose Australia as the place you'd call home in retirement? Okay, that's a very good one. Before I go into that, you let me put it open for your listeners that I'm not a typical migrant that story. Like I told you, I came here because I got a job. I was looking for a job and I was told, oh, by the way, that job carries a resident status. I thought, what does that mean? Now, when I, when I was here teaching geographic information systems and GIS and the technology part of it, but discussing and writing about the land tenure in rural Africa. I went to a conference in um, Durban, that's what it is, one of the Soviet I was invited to a conference there from the work I've done for Eritrea. I was consulting for the FAO on the land proclamation of Eritrea. They sent me as an expert on land information to help them implement their land proclamation. So I was invited to come and talk about that work at this conference in Durban. And that time I was a bit impatient. I was a young person, so it's allowed to be impatient when you're young. One of the presenters there, a white South African, was talking about the work they, are, they were doing in the informal settlement, the, what they call the townships. And I got a bit annoyed at what he was saying because he was describing how to manage land there that mirrored the 
World Bank prescription for the countries back then. World Bank was thinking that the way to solve the problems of Africa is to give everybody a title to land and they can borrow money and boom, they will go out of poverty. And I, I was among the few people who opposed that thing at conferences. So here's somebody preaching the same kind of thing for an informal, what they call the townships in South Africa. So during the discussion, I raised my hand and said, listen, I said, I'm sure that this person has not set his foot in an informal settlement. He's from South Africa. I said, but I'm sure he has never set his foot in one of those places. And I'm tired of people, when they drive there, they drive at full speed because they think these people are going to lynch them and they come and give us prescription about how to manage that place. I said, anybody who wants to tell us how to manage that place should at least go in there and see what it is like before they get the prescription. So when I came back from that conference, luckily, kind of um, by luck or whatever it is, we had a, a project in the University of Melbourne, jointly with the University of Cape Town and University of Western Cape about how to collect special information to enable the proper management of informal settlements in South Africa. And I said, well, that's great. I would like to spend time in one of those informal settlements as part of this project. So I contacted a friend of mine in the University of Cape Town, a Zimbabwean who moved to South Africa and we kept in touch. She arranged for me to go to Kailetja and spent one week living in one of those shacks. And after that, I felt, you know, I need to be, if I'm going to keep writing about land information management in rural Africa, I need to have an African address where I can have access to these things I'm writing. I cannot be living in Australia where there's no power shortages, water is there. If my neighbor's dog barks too loud, I call the police. I didn't do that thing, but just giving an example. I said, I can't be living in this kind of place, writing about people who have lost touch with. So I need to have an address in Africa. So that's how I started looking for work in Africa. And then someone said, oh, Botswana is looking for a senior lecturer. And I think you can help there. So I quickly sent my resume and they invited me for interview. Even though in real terms, it was a cut in pay when you compared it, but there are things better than money. I had more visibility there, even though my salary in Australia is much higher in, in, in real economy. But being in that department as a senior lecturer, I had access to the high levels of the university, which I wouldn't have in, in the University of Melbourne. So I took that job and moved to Botswana. That's, that's, so that's why I left. And when I was leaving, to be honest, I thought it would be gradually returning back home, preparing to gradually retire into Nigeria. For two years there, I was so busy. It's a new, it's not even a food department, it's a program in the civil engineering department. I was so busy, I didn't have time to even write a paper. Because you're, you're supposed to be teaching 12 and a half hours, but I was teaching about 25 hours a week. And at the end, I thought, no, if I stay here, I'm going to commit uh, academic suicide. I'm not going to progress. But Nigeria wasn't ready for me then, because by then, things have started going, we started seeing the negative, the downward trend. I mean, I'm going to be honest, since Nigeria has been going downward since the late 80s, 90s, I wasn't ready to return to Nigeria yet. I had sold my house in uh, Melbourne because I thought this is my grave, so I have to look for another place. That's when I then applied for jobs in the US and Canada. I was on my way to interview there when 
I got it from, from the UN. So good. I'm going to the UN. While there, I was now closer to Nigeria. I was going there often on official visit and there, hoping that, okay, I'm going to start planning for that my long-term retirement. I like planning things in advance. But this kept, in my mind, I think it's still going down. I said, no. By the time I retire, I knew when I was going to retire because you and they tell you your retirement age. I said, the way it's going by the time I retire, it's not going to be ready for me. So let me go back to Australia and start planning my retirement to Australia. So that's why I came back in 2007 to buy a property and then start establishing my connection to Australia. So okay, this is where I'm going to retire. And what's so special about Australia? What's special about Australia is that when I came here, I felt I could easily fit in. But having said that, I know that many migrants did not have the same experience. I could do that because I came with a very high qualification. I had a PhD then and had skills that were in demand. Many of the younger people may not have. So with, with my skills and education level, it was easy for me to fit in. And I found it, 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 it in terms of lifestyle, I find it about the same as Canada, which is where I did my PhD. So I thought, oh, this is the place, I would say. For some reason, America didn't quite strike me as the place I would like to retire. Uh, the, the news you get about treatment of uh, Africans and African-Americans didn't make me want to go into that environment. I prefer. Once I came to Australia, I kind of felt at home. I liked it. It's okay. If I'm coming back out from Africa, is where I'm going to be. In the development and the international aid space, people believe that everything that has got the seal of approval of the biggest organizations like the World Bank or the IMF is best for Africa. And it's often considered as a world best practice. Yet, from your own lived experience, this assumption is not necessarily correct. Not always. And I'm talking from my own experience. And the time I came to Australia in 1990, what was regarded as what in London information in land management area. Um, the preaching then of the World Bank was that the way to solve the poverty problems in Africa is to formalize the land rights so that people can go and use that as collateral to borrow money and then improve themselves and invest in business. And when I had that, I didn't quite agree with it because I've lived there. Not only did I live there, and as I told one of them by a citizen, back home, I'm a titled person. I'm, I'm what in Nigeria, in my language, called an Ozo. I have the Ozo title, which means that if I was living in the village, I would be part of the traditional decision-making body of the people. You must have a different kind of democracy where there's a body of elders that make decisions. Anybody who has this title also is part of that decision. I said, if I was living there, I would be part of this decision-making group. And therefore, I know about this. You guys don't know about it. So what you're saying is not true. Giving land, you're, you're forgetting some issues. There's some, in fact, the paper I wrote for that big company which says the cadastral uh, reform. Cadastral is the concept about transactions in land, keeping information that help transactions in land. I said they were talking about reforming the cadastral system. And so I wrote the paper with a colleague from. Uh, Australia, but who moved to New Zealand, I said, cadastral reform, the truth they never tell you about the cultural costs. And we dealt with the cultural costs of some of those prescriptions they were given there. 
either. It wouldn't work that way. It does not work that way. There are other things to consider. And that's how I got my notoriety and I started getting invited to give an alternative viewpoint to that one. And in data, by the time I retired in the data management area, yes, they did a lot of good work, they're still doing a lot of good work, but we were looking at data revolution in Africa. And for Africa, data revolution meant something different. We defined our own, in ECA, where I work, we defined our own concept of data revolution that we think is slightly different from what the rest of the world want because their own system is different. So the prescription is not always right. And I'm talking from my own experience in my own field that not always correct. But to be honest, over time, they changed. All those things I was shouting at that time, arguing with them, you find it, they've not been imbibed and absorbed into the prescriptions they give to countries now. So that's credit to, I mean, the FIG, International Federation of Surveyors. I used to fight with them, not fight, but I used to argue and say, hey, I can talk to you because I'm one of you. Some of your prescriptions won't work. The last meeting I went to an FIG meeting in Nairobi, 2017 or 16, I found that some of those things I was arguing with them, they're now talking about fit for purpose cadaster. That's what I was saying about 20 years ago. Now, when you first arrived in Australia, according to my own research and uh, that are available, there were hardly any migrants from sub-Saharan Africa. Now, tell us how you navigated the settlement phase when you first arrived and when there weren't many fellow Africans to guide through the first steps of uh, living in this country. Well, you talked about Africans arriving in the 90s, and that's when I came. I came out in 1990 when that some of the people who came as students in the 80s have transitioned to residence. They now finished their studies and stayed back. And I must say that they were very helpful for those of us coming in the 90s. And the communities have continued to help new migrants. So at that time, there was a very active Nigerian students, uh, Nigerian Society of Victoria, which had been transitioned from the Nigerian Students Union that it was then. Now that some of them have decided to settle and new people are coming, people like myself were coming. There was quite a bit of influx of uh, professional Nigerians coming around that 90 to 92. So they transitioned the society they had for students into society for migrants. So that's when I came in and it was very active. At that time, we were having meetings once every month in people's homes. So somebody will put up their hand that the family is. Um, my family is going to host you next month for this meeting. And we'll go to that person's house for a meeting and they'll cook and we'll eat. And that was, some of these little things are very important for new migrants coming in. At that time too, somewhere along the line, different African groups started coming together to form an African association. There were different attempts. That also helped. So I was very, I've been very active in that. My activity then continued that time and I've continued to remain active in the Unfortunately, when I came back on retirement, the Africans were now diverse. But you can understand because in the 90s, there were very few Africans, so we had that need to come together. Now that almost every country has enough people from that country to form their own association, they felt less need to come together in Africa. But I think it's a mistake. We still have to work on getting that together because it helped those of us who came in the 90s to settle in and not have any shocks, at least for me. Because I had a job to come, 
And a few of the Nigerians who came around that time were highly qualified, had a job to come to. So they didn't have any of those shocks that I hear younger people talk about and that can understand their shock. So we are there trying to help them to kind of diffuse the tensions and help them integrate because those people who were there helped us integrate. And that's an observation that I've also witnessed. Yeah, in our community, we've created so many silos amongst ourselves. Uh, that's very regrettable because if we worked together, pulled our resources together, we would be a force to really be reckoned with. But now you're at a stage you call a hybrid situation. Describe to us what you mean by being in a hybrid phase in your life. Uh, from my yoga studies, which is where I'm, I'm a yoga teacher, and to be a teacher, you have to study more than just the physical exercise. You have to study the philosophy. And the philosophy borrows a lot from uh, Hinduism. Now, in that philosophy, life is supposed to be in four stages. The first stage is the student stage, where you are learning the skills and gathering experience for life. Then the second stage in that, is that of a household that where you're supposed to now you finish your studies you're now earning money supporting a building a family together and then by the third stage your family is supposed to have grown and left home and you now don't need to be rushing chasing uh, wealth and uh, fame anymore okay. now where i say i'm in the hybrid that i've passed the second stage where i was working and earning money building a, enough for me to live for the rest of the life. But now I'm in the third stage, but for some reason, for people who are religious who say, God in his infinite wisdom decided to give me a young family. So I still have that householder responsibility of raising a young family. But the retiree stage of being there, done that, no need to chase and, and chase the, do the rat race anymore. That's why I say I'm hybrid. So, I have a young family, I have a five-year-old son, which should have been in the second stage, which I'm still doing in the third stage. But I'm, my outlook is that of uh, somebody who is, uh, who is in the third stage, who uh, not no longer excited by all these, uh, uh, let's have fun, let's run around, let's chase money. Oh, uh, I can make under one dollar here, no. I can, I, I, like the yoga I'm teaching here, it's completely free. If I was saying the second stage, I would be, Tell everybody how much they should pay. Eventually, I'll ask people to pay, but I don't, I don't feel I have to chase people. Part of it is also because I trained in the Shivananda system where it's still difficult for me to wrap around my head that of yoga as a business. I see yoga as something that is helping to develop yourself. And I'm not yet able to, I went to a, a course, I actually paid for this course on how to build my yoga business. At the end of the course, I told the instructor, thank you for your course, but I don't think I'm cut out for this. I'm not going to start trying to send people posts every, every day to come and register and try to get them to register for it. No, I want people, you talked earlier about seeing mostly women in yoga. And it's true, if you look at the yoga space, it's dominated by women, mostly white women and Indian men. There are not too many Africans in that space. And I think I want to be one of those who help make it accessible to Africa that there is something in this for you. Our health is very important. And I've heard stories about not here in Australia, thank God we have a very good health system in Australia. But I've heard stories of people in America who 
finish the gym and had a headache, go to the hospital, and they discover oh, they have something they've not been doing their checkup for so many years, and they, there's something they should have uh, prevented long ago. And now it becomes serious. Look, we don't have that in Australia, but still, we need to be aware that this body, this health, this mind have to be taken care of. I need to be able to translate it to the language, still English, but to concepts that our people understand. And that's why I'm here. And I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll help do that. So that's my hybrid where, yes, I'm still doing some of the things that people in the second stage are doing, raising a family. But I'm trying to live the life of somebody in the third stage who is no longer chasing the, doing the rat race and chasing every penny and every dollar. And now you're in that uh, phase in your life where you don't have to chase money and you can dedicate time doing things that you like, especially dedicate quality time to parenting. I used to tell someone, I said, listen, normally there's this concept that fathers are usually absentee parents because that's the, they, by that time they were in the second stage where they're chasing money, trying to make enough for the family. Now I'm not an absentee parent, I'm a full-time parent, I'm retired, I'm not chasing money anymore. And maybe the world should consider writing the rules and make men raise families when they're retired because that time they will no longer be absentee parents, but they will now be equal parents in, in the raising of family. I think the world should consider that from my, my experience, I say, yeah, that's a worthwhile consideration to do. Dozier, you've had a stellar and eclectic career and even had time to play music. How do you find time to fit in all the activities you do, your yoga and uh, even music? Okay, let me tell you how that started. Let me tell you how that started. <laughs> when I got to Canada, I was very active in the African Students Union in the university there. Most universities in North America, I don't think they have that in Australia, I don't think so, but most universities in North America have a radio station run by the Students Union. So the University of New Brunswick had a radio station run by the Students' Union. And there was an African program, one hour a week, every Sunday, that's one hour for African music that was being played there. When I got there, but before I went to Canada, I was already one of those people who like to collect music and people used to invite me to parties. And I always joke, I say, I'm not sure if you're inviting me or inviting my music collection, but I don't care, I'll be there. <laughs> so, so I already got into that thing. So when I got there, the person who was running the African music program was graduating and they needed somebody. So somebody told him, oh, there's a new PhD student who has a lot of experience in music. He has a good collection. So they contacted me. I said, yeah, I'd like to take over this thing. What do I need to do? They put me on a kind of a one-hour tutorial about what to do. I said, hey, great, I can do that. So I took over the radio station. And that meant that when we go to parties in the African uh, Students' Union, I'll bring some music from the, stage, from the studio to play at those parties. So that uh, exposed me to party DJing, which I used to do half-heartedly back in my younger days. So that then increased that. So I was now a parallel radio DJ and party DJ, but for parties. And that has, I kept that all through my life, collecting more and more African music. And, I have no apologies. Whenever I go to a party to play, I play strictly African music because there's enough variety and I had a good collection. So I could play African music from the beginning of a party to the end and not play any non-African music and everybody would be dancing. When I got to Ethiopia, I went to the African nightclub there. Yeah? I met the 
person, I said, hey, I have a good collection. Can I come and guest DJ for you? He said, sure. So I started guest DJ, and then a friend of mine opened a new nightclub. I became a regular guest DJ. Every Saturday, I'll go there and play for about one hour. Yeah, one thing about uh, this about having lived there myself is that this is not the kind of place where you'd expect to find someone of your caliber. High-ranking expatriates working for international organizations wouldn't, uh, aren't expected to be hanging out in that place. One thing you know from the time you know me, I never introduced myself as Dr. Zibaliki. I don't know if you noticed that. I always introduced myself as Josie. The doctor thing is when we are at an academic conference, when it's necessary. Because if you come and put yourself as doctors, people put you on a pedestal. They think there are certain conversations that you shouldn't be having that is below you. But if they know me as dossier, they can, by the time they know I have a PhD, so they've already established rapport and we can continue. So that, 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 that's my character. I like to meet people. I like to, inter when you come at that level, there's a lot of gist of stories you get at the low level that you don't get up there. And I like those stories that I like to integrate at that level. And usually, to be honest, when people find out that you have a PhD, they cannot switch off anymore. They've already established a rapport and they respect you more. And going back to yoga, Africans are usually into athletics, team sports like uh, soccer, etc. How did you learn into this oriental spiritual physical activity? Now, my journey, my yoga journey, a long story, but let me try and see if I can give you a, a short version of it. When I was in school, I was one of those people who specialized in passing exams. I could pass any exam I went to, and I would pass very well. I wouldn't tell my son that I'm always coming first. It would not be true, but I came first many times. You know, in those ways, they used to rank you first, second, third. I came first many times. Second was my special. I always come second. Most of the time I came second. So I was up there academically. But for some reason, I got brought up in fitness. How that being fit is important. So I used to exercise. But I, everybody in Africa, like you say, played soccer. I mean, street soccer is it. We, we call it a challenge. You take one goal. You play. So everybody played that. But I didn't make it. I wasn't good enough to play in the school team. So, but then I had to keep fit. So that back then I used to just go to the library. I was also lucky to be introduced to the library early in my life. So I'll go to the library and borrow books about exercises and try to do it when I would go to the university. I didn't make it into the soccer club. I didn't make it in the soccer team. I didn't make it into the basketball team, but I had to exercise every day. By that time there was no gym. Remember this gym thing is a new creation. We didn't have yeah. gyms in, our, in the eighties. So I would go to the library and borrow books on, that's what I knew about the word calisthenics, borrow books, and I could stay in my room and walk out a big sweat without going anywhere, different exercises. At that time also, I happened to be reading things about mind development. And there was a friend of mine who I still remember, he and I having a experiment with a playing card to see how many of the cards I could guess, kind of trying to see if you have a psychic powers. We, we believe everybody has psychic powers for different levels of development. So we used to have those uh, games to see who would do that. From that, the condition of this need to exercise and this need to read up about mind and things, I stumbled upon a book that described different ways of mind development. And in this book, I, I, I always liked reading then, I came across the word yoga. 
I talked about yoga as a balanced system that combines the development of the physical, the mental, and the spiritual. Wow, I have to see this. So <laughs> from this one word in this book, I went back to the days of a library card, an index cards. I went back to the library and started looking for index cards on yoga and brought the book. I remember one of the books I read up. For some reason, I hadn't gone into the surgeon, but the book, the first sentence says, do you wake up in the morning and say, good morning, God? Or do you say, good God, morning? So depending on how you say it, tells how you slept and how fit you are. Say, if you slept very well and you're fit, you say, oh, good morning, God, is a nice day. But if you've not slept well and you're not fit, you say, oh, good God, is it morning already? <laughs> I remember that. So I say, yeah, this is what I need. Then I found a book, Richard Hetzelman's 28-day yoga exercise plan. At that time, and even now, I'm still, a very, I'm still very good at following instructions. I can teach myself anything I want to learn. So I borrowed that book, very disciplined learner, followed instructions day one, day two, day three for 28 days to learn yoga on my own. Then I started subscribing to magazines and said, oh, this is really my life now. And that's how it's been. Continued that throughout Canada, throughout Zimbabwe, Botswana, all my travel, I was always doing yoga and always met people who would like you to teach them yoga. Now, how I got into teaching now as a kind of my retirement uh, assignment is that in those days, remember there was no YouTube, there was no internet. The only way I was measuring my progress is once in a while, I'll get someone to come and take a picture of me doing yoga, pictures of me. What? I now know we call photo shoot. So somebody, a friend of mine will come, as an interest I had then, I was in, into photography too. We'll come and do a photo shoot of my various yoga poses. We send it, develop it, and I put it in, in, a, in an album, then compare that with the ones in the magazines I was subscribing from London, and then know which ones to improve. So the pictures I took in 1985, back in Ethiopia, somebody who works in ECA came to my house for lunch one day with a group of friends and saw this album. They say, oh, they say, is that you? I say, yeah, that's me. You did yoga? I say, no, not did. I do yoga. I say, you still do it? Say, yes. You have to teach us. I said, but I don't know how to teach. I say, you have to teach us. She works, she worked in the HR department. She went to HR and told everybody, hey, Dozier is going to teach us yoga. I went to the staff union, which at that time had a, a gym. I said, we need space for yoga. The is going to teach us yoga. So I was kind of conscripted <laughs> into teaching yoga. And I felt, well, if I have to do it, I have to learn how to So now, okay, let me go to a teacher training course on how to teach yoga. And that has it. So when it came time for retirement, I was also lucky that I worked in a place where they have retirement planning. So when retirement planning says, so okay, what are you going to do in retirement? You have to think. It doesn't matter what it is. We have to think what you are going to do when you retire. I said, yoga it was stressful for me. And so I went to more training and reinvented myself now as a very qualified uh, yoga teacher. Now you bring these skills not only to African Australians, but to followers uh, from uh, right across the world. Well, it's not only, really, yeah, you're right, but because uh, my class, you know how the social media has allowed us to regroup our old friends. So we have a group of uh, my classmates from high school. And on that platform, I told them about yoga. And we agreed to talk a yoga class on Zoom. If, even though COVID was uh, horrible for the world, 
there's something that's done that allowed us to use virtual learning, virtual media and things. Because that time it was COVID time, everybody's now talking about Zoom and virtual space. So we set up a yoga class with people in Nigeria, people in the US, and people in Australia here, joining yoga classes every week. Then people from my university days who graduated at the same time, we set up another one, and now people in Australia here. So I have three of those, I call it free trial series running every week. it for this episode of the many voices of Africans on the rise. A big thank you to our guest Dozier Zikbaleke for sharing his story. I am Bertrand Tungandami and I look forward to sharing with you more stories of the many voices of Africans on the rise.